0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, one of your hosts, and we're here today with Dr. Luca Schultz, a lecturer in digital humanities at the University of Manchester. Dr. Schultz has varied interests, wide ranging data analysis, analysis, the collection of that data, broad trends over space and time, all of which intersect in the topic of today's talk his first monograph, Borders and Freedom of Movement in the Holy Roman Empire, out this year from Oxford Univers- University Press. Welcome, Luca. Hi, Anna.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Oh, thank you. It's so nice. How are you? How's Manchester today?
1: Yeah, it's pretty good. It's uh, it's sunny, which is rare. So that's great. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah, Oh, I hear you. Uh, definitely. Uh, as an Amsterdam re- resident, I'm familiar with those rare moments of sun where you just want to mm-hmm. go out and look at it. Um, so I'm happy to talk to you today. Um, so, I've been, I've been looking at some of your public, at your kind of past publications, and in particular, I want to showcase um, three of your publications from 2018 right? Deceptive Continuity, The Polygon and Spatial History, which is in Cartographica, the International Journal for Geographical Information and Geovisualization, which is a, a, a publication I learned about. From this. Uh, Then La Strada Prohibita, L'Uso de Lestrade nello Sacro Romano Impero in Epoca Moderna, in quadrant historici, which is one of my favorite publications of all time. In English, The Prohibited Street, the Use of Streets in the Holy Roman Empire in the Early Modern Era. And then Le passeport Insulte, Lettre de Passage, and Ambiguité Territoriale dans le Saint-Empire 7e siècle. The Insulted Passport, Letters of Passage and Territorial Ambiguity in the Holy Roman Empire of the 17th Century, which was in a collected volume called The Holy Roman Empire, Social History, 16th to 18th Centuries. And so I see here a triangulate, triangulation around Germanic path, borders, and freedom of movement. But I wonder if you could connect those dots for our listeners. How did you come to write this book?
1: Yeah, um, so... Um, well, the book is, a is, a um, is basically my, my, a, a reworked version of my, of my PhD dissertation. Um, and two of the articles that you mentioned, the Italian and the French one are basically, um, um, yeah, outtakes or, or things that, that grew mm-hmm. out of the, out of the book project. Um, and the, the last one, the one about polygons and spatial history is something that, um, relates to the work that I've begun when I was finishing, um, uh, the monograph or revising it for publication, which is um, making maps basically um, as a, as a way of doing uh, historical research. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, I guess that, that is how those three um, how those, <laughs> how those are connected. Um, um, yeah, I think, I mean, if you like, I can say a couple of things about how I came to write about this, um, about this. Absolutely. Yeah. About this topic. So, yeah, um, so I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, German, Italian. I grew up in Germany, um, um, for the, for the most part. I also lived in, 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 in Italy as well. And, um, when I started college, I actually didn't study history. I studied economics and, and for some reason I really, well, for several reasons, I, I didn't quite like that. It was a very, it's a very formalized way of, of engaging with, um, with, 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 with information. And it's, um, it was, yeah, it was just not for me. And then, so I decided to do mm-hmm. history, um, and, um, and I did that in, um, in in France because in in Germany it's very difficult um, if you have a degree in one subject they don't easily let you switch your subject then for your masters. But in France that wasn't a problem, so I I went there and um and was there actually that I stumbled on the Holy Roman Empire, which is something that as a as a German we never in school that was not something that that really came up. It was not something that we treated, and I think that really made me more curious about it. Um. And, and and really
0: yeah, i'm so surprised about
1: that yeah that i think
0: the i would
1: yeah i think the german Go ahead. Yeah, sorry the german curriculum is very much <laughs> yeah if if i recall i mean you obviously you talk a lot about um you talk a bit about um you talk a bit about the obviously the, the the well antiquity, you talk about the middle ages, you talk uh not not too much though. and then basically it's the the yeah the history that that i recall from 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 high school started in. Yeah, started in the 19th century, right? And then you get the whole, you get the mm-hmm. history of, of of Germany, of the Zollverein, you get Bismarck, and mm-hmm. and then obviously you get the um, you get the you get the World Wars, you get the Nazis, you get the early Federal okay. Republic. But yeah, this was a chapter of German history that was completely um, that yes. I had no idea about. And I took this class, and I was I just came out of these seminars in economics that are incredibly, they're very hard, but they're also very boring, and in a way they're also quite they're not intellectually very stimulating because you just sit there doing differential calculus. And suddenly I sat in that class and I had these two great, uh, great, great, uh, great teachers um, in, in, in Paris, one of whom then became, well, one of whom supervised my MA dissertation, the other one, then my, my doctoral, um, my PhD dissertation. And they had this amazing class on the Holy Roman empire. It was weird and funny. And I think that really, yeah, that really captured my, my imagination. Um, and then I, um, I went on to do a PhD at the European University Institute in, in Florence, which is this—it's um, basically a European Union-funded university. And what's nice about it is that people are admitted by quotas by country. So you get—I um, don't know—you get like five Germans, and you get like four people from Spain, and you get two Italians, and you get people well from every member state of the European of the european union and so that is where i started this project right writing this history of um of of borders and freedom of movement in the holy roman empire and um yeah i I guess what what was weird in that context is that it was a place where global history was very strong and basically all my peers um my whole cohort of, of other phds everyone was working almost everyone was working on a global history project and I was one of the very few worked on something, I wouldn't call it national history, but it was definitely, right, definitely wasn't global. Um And that in a way that, yeah, and I had to, it was an interesting position to be in. I think ultimately it was, it was interesting because I never, I think I, I never bought the, I, I, never, I never liked the idea that you, to do something that is relevant um, beyond national history, you definitely need to expand your spatial scope. Um, I think you can do the same thing by talking about problems and questions that are relevant right to a broader community than just your national audience mm-hmm. and that is what i've tried to do um that is very much what i've tried to do with this book um mm-hmm. and and the and the dissertation yeah and it, in, a, in a way like i yeah and then after that i, I moved on to uh, i had a i, w- I was a postdoc at, at stanford and that is where in a way i, I revised this whole thing and um, mm-hmm. And what was interesting is, in a way, like I had had written this whole, uh, I had this whole manuscript, but I hadn't, didn't have a single map. But it's a it's a it's a book mm-hmm. that is very much about, um, that is very much about space, right? It's a it's a spatial argument. Mm-hmm. And um, at Stanford, I was I was um, I was I was uh, part of this. Um, it's called the Spatial History Project, which is a very um, which is uh, was started by Richard White, and it's a well, it's it's a fairly exciting, um, it's a fairly exciting environment where they're using basically the idea is to use maps as a tool of research, right? Not just something to that you use to to to, to convey knowledge that you already have, but actually to find out stuff and. Um, and that is yeah. So I started in a way making using information that I'd found in my sources to make maps with that, and um, mm-hmm. that made me also realize. And a lot of those maps ended up in the book, and that made me realize in many ways how powerful um, a visual argument um, um, can be. Right? You can I can talk for hours about 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 something, but when I show people a map, um, it's it's uh, it's much more effective at at at, at Making them understand and 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 appreciate um what I'm saying
0: mm-hmm. yeah wonderful and i we I when mean, we see this right, I was going to ask you more to, to kind of expand on your methodology, but perhaps we you've just done it there um there's this wide variety of sources, and you have some when I mean, you use kind of the uh, the usual suspects, but then also there's this analysis that I get to see through maps. Uh, that's very cool in this book. It's very interesting, and it feels new.
1: Yeah, right. So, um, yeah. So, so I mean, I guess I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the key arguments in the book is that um, borders did not, up, up until the mid-eighteenth century, did not actually play a very, um, a hugely important role in channeling movements of mm-hmm. goods and people, and. Um, the way I the way I made that argument well I made it in different ways but one way of making that argument was to map out um, was to map out um, um, the locations of toll stations on a map um, so the places where if you mm-hmm. travel through that landscape where they would stop you right and and and, and check your passports. Um, and I realized well those if you if you put those on a map they don't coincide at all with with the territorial boundaries um, mm-hmm. so I think that's a good example of how of how we can um how we can use maps to to yeah to to make historical arguments to engage with spatial um to engage with spatial with spatial data and spatial information and it's new in some ways in the in the sense that well we, we have gis right there's you have geographic information <laughs> systems that make that process fairly fairly easy and straightforward and you have our capabilities for visualizing maps are are, are grown a lot and it's um you can really use it as, a, as an exploratory tool of research. And at the same time, historians have been making maps for, for centuries. Um, yeah. so, so there is a, yeah, so it has, it's, it's an interesting mix of continuity and, and, and change that you have there.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've, you've kind of started the, the answer to my next question as well, but let's, so let's get down to it. Like, what do you cover and what would you consider to be the main argument, arguments of your book?
1: Um yeah, so I would say I would say I make three, yeah, I, th- I would say I make three key key arguments, or there are key te- three key takeaways from the book. Um, so one is the is what I call the enclosure of movement. And basically what I argue is that um, attempts to escort travelers or to issue letters of passage or to uh, criminalize the use of forbidden roads where all ways of transforming transit rights. Um, into excludable and fiscally exploitable um, goods. Um, so obviously in practice, these efforts to regulate movements of goods and people were very patchy and inadequate. Um, and mobile populations, um, so from emperors to, uh, to peasants, defied um, uh, attempts to govern their mobility uh, with, with actions ranging from anything, anything from, from formal protest to bloodshed um but i think this 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 idea that what we are witnessing here it can be described as a as an enclosure of movement is i think that's one of the key that's that's the first insight i would say um the second one is that is is what i just mentioned is about the the spatial distribution of these conflicts, right? So um, we know that borders fulfilled very important symbolic and legal functions in in in, in early modern Europe and and especially in the early modern um, in the Holy Roman Empire. But restrictions on moving goods and people were rarely concentrated at borders before the mid eighteenth century um before yeah, before the mid eighteenth century. Um but they were rather they were unevenly distributed along roads and rivers. So you have them at choke points like like um, mm-hmm. toll gates or, or mountain valleys. Um and then I think the third I think the third contribution is that um, um is that I, I, I show that there are very intense intellectual debates going on at the time around the polities um, so the members of the Holy Roman Empire's uh, right to interfere with freedom of movement. Um, so the, the empire's political order guaranteed fairly extensive um, transit rights, um, which were controversial because apologies of freedom of movement and and claims of um, of protecting travelers could also mask fairly aggressive attempts of territorial um, um, expansion. Um, so I would say, yeah, I would say these are the three key points and um Um, In in a way, what we have there is, so you have, on the one hand, strong continuities to medieval patterns, but also more distinctly modern um, developments in this uh, spatially dispersed and very selective and contentious uh, regime of movement that affected the people who moved through that um, heart of early modern Europe.
0: Great. So uh, let's. Uh, that's an excellent introduction to your work. So uh, let's go through it chapter by chapter, and you can we can look at the legs of this argument. So please tell me what you do in chapter one: the ordering of movement.
1: Uh, right. Yes, that's basically an introductory chapter, and um, on the one hand, I survey different different ways in which um, in which um, early modern societies, um, not just in the Holy Roman Empire, attempted to promote and restrict and, and profit from flows and goods uh, of goods and people. Um, and and um, what I argue is that the, this ordering of movement was a key element of state building, um, and I use a concept uh, developed by a scholar at um, uh, in in the York John Torpey um, who called that um, a monopolization of the legitimate means of movement. Um, now, obviously, this was something. So, governing movements of goods and people was something that was was a common problem throughout the early modern world. So, from the Spanish treasure fleets to the English poor laws, but. Um, what I argue is that there were a few places where it posed a greater problem than uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, where you had uh, more than 300 uh, would-be sovereign political entities, um, some of which consisted of, of nothing but borders, which is a, which is actually something that an 18th-century lawyer once said about about the empire. Um, and you have many rulers there compete with their neighbors in controlling rights of passage on certain roads and rivers, right, and channeling desired flow through their dominions and diverting unwelcome movements and in a certain way there is no you couldn't wish for a better laboratory for exploring this history than than the holy roman empire um, and i also talk about a little bit about the historiography of the holy roman empire which is an which is a fascinating thing in itself um, which is which for a long time has been dominated, I would say, um, and it's a simplification, but I think you can put it that way. Has been dominated by two questions, and one one question was: so, is the, was the empire something, was the empire something functional, um, or was it something dysfunctional? Was it was it a progressive society in a sense, or was it a backward, was it a backward reality? Um, and that has a very old history. It has a lot to do with how. Um, with with the uh, presentist tendencies of historians, um, so especially Prussian historians who tended to write the success story of the Prussian state um, against the, the the negative foil of right that was the Holy Roman Empire. Um, and the the other question that dominated um, the history historiography on the Holy Roman Empire is for a long time was the question of whether the Holy Roman Empire uh, should be seen as a state or or not. And you find all kinds of interpretations. So you have some people who basically saw it as some kind of failed nation-state. Um, others saw it more as a confederation. Um, some historians um, described it as the basically the first German nation-state, called it a complementary nation-state. And, and some people saw it as a precursor to the European Union. Um, and there's been a lot of controversy around that. And I, what I see is that in recent years... Um, Historians, some of the very leading historians um, in Germany, but also outside Germany, are kind of leaving those questions aside and are looking more at how the Holy Roman Empire functioned as as something in its own right. And and in a sense, I yeah, I kind of I kind of try to avoid these diachronic perspectives as well because. Um, because that's what they are, right? The, all these narratives only function against the foil of modernity, right? Um, whether it's a, whether it's the modern nation state, whether it's a society perceived as, as progressive. And instead, what I try to do is, I guess, I try to take a spatial perspective, um, which is tricky, because historians of empires often struggle to describe empires in, in spatial terms. And I do it in two ways. I think one way is I I, I, I try to look at the – well, obviously, I look right at the geography of government mobility, um, but I also try to situate the empire in a broader perspective than that of German history. Um, and that is because the historiography of the whole Roman Empire is largely written – and there are notable exceptions of it, especially in recent years – but for the – for. for uh, the large chunk of it is written in German by German historians. And it tended to be for a long time. It has also been quite self-referential. So the old Reichsgeschichte was something, yeah, it was something was a, was a fairly, um, was a fairly narrow community, community of scholars. Mm-hmm. And what I think is that having, having studied this and having talked about this, uh, in, in different universities in Europe and in the United States, I realized that, well, the Holy Roman empire should be of interest to a lot more people than just German historians. Um, right? It's this it, polycentric, fragmented, multi-layered political order. Mm-hmm. Um, is actually, there is a lot, if you look at, so it was, for instance, talking to historians um, as a historian of, of, of early modern Japan at, at Stanford that I talked to about this. And I realized that, well, actually, uh, the, the things that we study have a lot in common. Um, same thing with Ottoman historians. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I think there is there are conversations to be had there um, that, that anyone, everyone would benefit from. So in a way, this is also an attempt at at, at making people aware that the Holy Roman Empire is actually, it's not just for German historians. It's actually, and it's also interesting because I think it complicates, it complicates a narrative of European uniformity that um, both Europeans like to use in the sense that it's 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 a good excuse for not engaging with the history of other corners of the world. But I've also seen that, um, uh, historians of other world areas often like to. There's often this narrative where you have, where you have um, basically this 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 notion of of Europe as a black box, right? Where you have, for instance, when people talk about the Westphalian state, um, and that and that model, and then you can basically show how the area that you study is very is very different from that. And I think what the Holy Roman Empire shows is that it it, it tears that idea of European uniformity mm-hmm. and, and simplicity apart. um, the biggest, mm-hmm. the biggest exception to Westphalian statehood sits, sits at the heart of Europe, right? It's where <laughs> it's where the Westphalian peace treaties were, were signed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then mm-hmm. and so the, the thing that allows me to do that is is this institution of safe conduct, which I mean, I'm not going to mm-hmm. go uh, into details in explaining what it is. It was, in German it was called Geleit, or Geleitrecht, mm-hmm. um, and it's obviously something that you have it's a widespread institution right you find that across the pre-modern world um but it took on um extraordinary significance in this f- fragmented landscape that was the holy roman empire um because it was one of the uh, it became basically one of the most important frameworks for negotiating movements of goods and people and their mm-hmm. and their restriction um and it could take many forms it could be originally it meant the physical escorting of certain travellers and um, vulnerable groups of travellers to protect them. So those could be uh, merchants or messengers or uh, envoys or Jewish travellers. Um, but it could also be to honour persons of rank, like like travelling uh, princes. But it also could just mean the levy of tolls and of customs duties. So and, and it was a very amb- ambiguous thing because it served to promote and to restrict mobility. Um, and it changed its shape a lot um, um, over the course of the medieval and early, early modern, early modern period. Um, yeah, but that is that is pretty much what I what I discuss in that chapter.
0: So I see like one of the points that makes this very interesting and such a great place to study is that there are so many borders or borderlands or liminal spaces. Right. There is. There's hundreds of national little boundaries and that intersect, or like, what you know, nation states, city states, what have you. But then there's all of the, uh, the waterways and ways that one might get around. So there are these other levels of intersection. Um, and by eschewing what you call, you know, this diachronic model, by eschewing, like, uh, change over just a, a, pro- a progress narrative or a narrative that works on change over time and talking about how it works with space, is uh, ambitious it's really cool. Um, but I think it shows up, I think chapter two is a place where you can talk about how, how chapter two theaters of transit, which is, a uh, kind of, you, do you take a look at time. I think I'm pronouncing that. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and this is a place where you can kind of showcase a lot of your arguments about, about like the, a lot of the arguments that run through the lines that run through the book, Would you like to talk about that.
1: Yeah, cool. sure. So, yeah. So the this, um so the second chapter, yeah, it revolves around this very small county, the county of Wertheim, um, which was a, a was really minuscule. Um, actually, was called the county of Löwenstein Wertheim. and it was surrounded by uh, powerful neighbors. So on the one hand, the Prince Bishopric of Mainz, and on the other hand, the Prince Bishopric of Würzburg. So powerful Catholic neighbors, uh, small uh, uh, Protestant, uh, small Protestant territory for for the most part. Um, and, uh, and I decided to do that because that's so I went to I think I saw I visited over 20 archives for for this research. And I found Jeez. I was lucky to find material everywhere, which which was great on the one hand, because it really allowed me to 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 find good and, and interesting and telling material. But it was also a challenge because um well you you can it's very difficult to to synthesize all that all that information so and also to contextualize and that's something you really need to do when you work in the holy roman empire because um it's such a polycentric landscape that you you need to understand what goes on locally um to to make sense of it so this chapter revolves around this small uh small county um and it's basically about this act of escorting um travelers right mm-hmm. um, which was important in the holy roman empire because it It was basically a way for a prince to express their uh, territorial claims um, 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 over a road or a river, but also the boundary of that claim. So there was a moment when they had to hand over the the escorted person, the traveler, to the neighbors. Um, And it was important for all imperial state, but but especially for those at the bottom of the feudal pecking order, whose claims of uh, territorial superiority were particularly um, uh, precarious. now, on 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 this this county of their time lay it, it lay on this on this river mine, uh, which is a which was a yeah was was a fairly important trade route, um, and the the key point of contention there was the safe conduct for the market chips that went to and from the Frankfurt trade fairs. Um, so basically, twice a year, what you have you get these uh, competing safe conduct processions that uh, quarrel over the right to escort the market chips from the riverbanks. Um, so the way this works in practice is that the counts and, 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 and their neighbors mobilize hundreds, sometimes thousands of subjects. Um, they assemble them in the early hours of the morning at a, at a boundary stone. And then they have to attempt to escort the market ships from the riverbank. And the way this works is that you have to keep the vanguard of the procession. So everyone, so the, the, the competing groups of escorts try to walk um, at, the, at, the, uh, at the front of the procession. And so you get all these shoving matches and actually much worse. So um, um, in fact, many subjects, but, but even officials were not very happy about taking part in those processions because they, they often got seriously out of hand, especially in the case of their time. Uh, you had threats, you had insults, uh, mockeries were very common. People would drink um, uh, on those occasions, but sometimes you get warlike scenes. So people people <clears> died. Um, I think there was a case in 1602 when when the market the count's market ships uh, that, that that should uh, escort the ships uh, on on the river falls into an ambush. Right, suddenly there's heavy fire from both sides of the river, and two subjects die, and they they one person. Um, Get, gets a shot, uh, gets a shot through his foot with a, with a poisoned bullet and then dies days later. And they, they, what they assume is that, that, the that the bullets were poisoned. Um, um, so as a consequence, the commoners often refuse to participate in these processions or they complain about it or they just hide away. Um, so I start the book with a quote from, from, uh, from, uh, um, from, uh, a guy called, um, Stefan was a baker in that and who at some point, uh, in a, in a procession, um, Uh, grumbled about it and said that uh, according to the report and some quoting the report says he was so tired of beating the drums that he almost could not move his arms anymore and that he would prefer Mm -hmm. to say goodbye to my drum. Right. And and return it to the town hall. Um, Or or you had the fishermen in a small village that almost staged a rebellion. Um, And and travelers as well were often annoyed at the practice. They refused to be escorted. the emperors themselves refusedly repeatedly ask not to be escorted. Um, um, and I mean what's basically what the, the way I interpret these quarrels is that um, these safe, these these kinds of disputes were ways of expressing, of rejecting, and of negotiating competing claims of sovereignty. Um, which actually sovereignty is not a good word in, in this context. It's more in the Holy Roman Empire was more about territorial superiority, um Landeshoheit. Um and, but I think in a way, like I try to be more precise than that, because in a way, everything in the Holy Roman Empire mm-hmm. is about territorial superiority all the time. Safe conduct is about a very specific aspect of sovereignty, um, and that is the authority to restrict or to promote or channel or fiscally exploit movements of goods and people, um, something that was hardly attainable in this complex uh, geography of, of the of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, so the, the, the disorder right, that we see in these safe conduct procession was not simply mm-hmm. a sign of laxity or of incompetence. It could be. But for the most part, it was a symbolic expression of the deep controversy um, that was mm-hmm. inherent to the old rice uh, politics of mobility.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, which is something that you really get to in Chapter 3, Boundaries. Um, questioning kind of the lived import of boundaries, but how they played out as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think what's interesting, when, when you look at a map of early modern Europe, um, it's fairly easy to recognize the Holy Roman Empire, right? Because it's so fractured, because it has this incredible density of, of yeah. boundaries. Um, and there is a there is a large, there's a very big historiography on borders, um, on boundaries in the Holy Roman Empire. Um, but what I and when, when I started the, the the book, that was what I was looking to. But at some point, I realized that well, the, the 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 ways the word border is used here is that it's it's seen as something it's just it's it's it's, it's something that delimits rights over land and its inhabitants. Um, it's not so much treated as a as a as an instrument for channeling moving goods and people. Um, and that was that was a. So it's a distinction you could call the one thing the property boundary and the other thing the mobility boundary. And I was much more interested in the mobility boundary than in the um, than in what you could call the property boundary. Um, now, safe conduct processions, in a way, are a good example, right, for how the border could become a tool for channeling movement, how it could become relevant in that context, um, because obviously the escorts, they had to agree where to hand over the traveler's um, right to the escorts of a neighboring ruler. So you get these very theatricalized crossing um, of these boundaries um, <laughs> and, and it was so escorts would, for instance, when it was at, at a brook or a river, the, the escorts from both sides would put their would advance with the horses and have the horses four feet stand in the water on each side. Um, you would have uh, notaries that would be paid to observe the whole scene and write it down. You would have sworn witnesses. Obviously, the local population was Was very important and i described that in that chapter and also found some i was lucky to find some um, sumptuous maps um in in munich that um that 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 are very rare in the sense that they really give us an exact idea of how these um how these um border crossings took place but that was the one thing and then so in a way in that context yeah borders are hugely important right when it comes to movement but In everyday life, I realized more and more as I I went to the archives, well, territorial boundaries only played a fairly limited role for channeling Mm. mobility. And uh, I think that has to do partly with also our contemporary discourse, right? The way we use the word border, basically, when we say Mm -hmm. border, it's it's a shorthand for all state interference with interpolity mobility. Um, so, for instance, it, when you had a couple of years ago, uh, the so-called refugee crisis in Europe, that was framed as a question of protecting borders. But, well, this is really a story that unfolds at internal ports of entry. So mostly a train station and the detention camps that are spread across the landscape. So, um and, and historians tend to use the word border in a similar way right when we talk when you when we talk about borders it's easy to assume well you just you, you a lot of people just use it as a shorthand for um, mm-hmm. contacts between authorities and mobile populations and that's certainly what i did when i started working on this project and i think part of the problem is the maps that we use right which reinforce this mm-hmm. emphasis on, on the border mm-hmm. in fact many of the ideas and maybe also misconceptions that i had about early modern territoriality came from the maps that I was using. So um, drawing up, and, and we already talked about the maps, right? But drawing up the maps that that, that I did then made me realize that, well, actually, um, borders weren't that important. So wh- when you take a conventional map of the Holy Roman Empire, right, where with all these crisscrossed by all these borders and you assume that someone is moving through that landscape, um, well, you assume that they would be controlled at the territorial borders. But what I did is I, I then mapped the location of the toll stations against those boundaries. Mm-hmm. And what I saw is that they very rarely coincide. There's very little spatial correlation between the two. And if you then take into mm-hmm. account the terrain, so the, the elevation, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and also the road network, um, basically what you realize is that toll stations are located along the m- main corridors of travel um, um, with the lowest elevation. And they are also, for the most part, they coincide with um, cities and settlement. Um, mm-hmm. Settlements. So, so in a way, the, these kinds of if you if maps of state interferences with trade flows look very different than maps of jurisdictional um, boundaries um, um, mm-hmm. for for the most part of the early modern period. And in the Holy Roman Empire, this situation only changes. Uh, it begins to change in the second half of the eighteenth century, and undergoes a more profound transformation. So, this is a moment when uh, an increasing number of territories. Begin to um, um, basically relocate the levy of duties to their outer borders, um, of, of and also the commer- major commercial hubs within their territory. Um, and the, the also, you also see that in the discourse. So duties are increasingly seen as a tool of um, of protectionist economic policies, um, in addition to generating fiscal revenue. And um, a textbook example for that is, is Bavaria, where in 1764 the um, electorate reformed its toll system and basically abolished most internal tariffs and drastically cut um, 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 uh, its 400 toll stations across the territory. And there were still some internal custom stations, but basically you only had to pay duties when they when when your um, when your trajectory involved a border crossing. Um, sure. So, in a way, I think that. I think methodologically, um, I think what that showed me is that it that maybe we should try to get better or more nuanced ways of mapping pre-modern societies um, and, and that those are, can make a big difference in how we perceive them. And I think for me, at least, one of the main challenges is to just find ways of mapping space that, um, yeah, that overcome conceptions of spatial order that are primarily concerned with spatial differentiation, right? So where space is a uh, space is basically this flat representational plane that you can visibly partition, um, or it, it's, it's a flat surface for on which states project their uh, dominance, which is a vision of space that found a culmination maybe in the thought of, of someone like Carl Schmitt. Um, and in a way, it doesn't help that the shapes formed by territorial boundaries are to many of us, the symbols of the nation state par excellence, right? So you recognize Italy on a map by its boot shape, or French students learn yeah. about the hexagon in school. Um, <laughs> and the, the problem is, space is so much less clearly partitioned in early mod in early modernity um, that, um, or it's it's partitioned, but it's partitioned. These partitions overlap; uh, they, they crisscross a lot. It's a very complex landscape. Um, so, so, um, yeah, I think we, we, we can, I think there is a lot of work to be done to find alternative ways of mapping that are more representative of pre-modern spatial, um, spatial orders. And maps can be, well, sorry, maps can be a powerful corrective, right? To, to, to challenge those geographic conceptions that we, that we rely on of, often implicitly.
0: Well, and I think um, recalling that boundary lands, that border lands are different as well. Like you can draw these lines on maps, but exactly where, what, what is changing? And so, you know, you're going to have linguistic overlap and all of these ways that kind of places culturally overlap. But then if we want to talk about actual trade and carrying goods from one territory to another, from city A to city B, um and chapter four, channeling movement, um, you talk about the ways, the methods that that have to be used when our when boundaries are so sketchy. You have to. You talk about these ways that methods are used to control transit and trade, uh, right across kind of board, these borders. And I'm making air quotes.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, basically the next, so they yeah, that chapter was basically, so I asked myself, so what does all this look like in everyday life? Um, <laughs> because if you are a commoner, well, you would rarely be escorted, right? Um, so your sure. experience of safe conduct would be, um, you would see that as a levy of tolls and customs duties, or maybe an obligation to carry letters of passage. Um, but still, that was no less controversial than what you had with this, with these processions. Um, but to, to make sense of it, you really need to look at what happens at ground level. Um, and in mm-hmm. this chapter, I did that. I took the example of Turinja, which was one of the most fragmented regions uh, in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, uh, probably in early modern Europe, and 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 well, probably even the early modern world. Um, so basically, you have more than three, 30 distinct political entities on an area that roughly corresponds to what is Swaziland today. Um, and at the same time, it's uh it's uh you have these strategic trade route uh routes that go through it, that meet in Erfurt, um and that go from that connect north and south and east and west. And the whole region is dominated by one noble family, the Ernestine Dukes of Saxony. Um they uh they and they claim the right of safe conduct in the territories of their neighbors as well, um, which which as you can imagine was hugely uh they the neighbors mm-hmm. did not particularly <laughs> like. Um And basically, if you travel through that landscape um, and you are susceptible of paying conduct duties, um, 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 you would either have to carry with you a conduct ticket, which is basically a receipt that you had already paid your duties, or a passport. And the passport certifies your exemption from the duties. Um, And what the Dukes did is they attempted to monopolize the issuance of passports, so they would only recognize their own. Um, so you would necessarily have to go through their bureaucracies, right? You would, you, and 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 uh, plead for plead for uh, for a for a passport, and that entailed, uh, in a way, a symbolic subjection, also a bureaucratic burden, because it basically meant you had to go to go there. There were long delays as well, and. Uh, uh, I found one report. I think it was from 1689 that um, that I found in Myanmar in, in the in the state archives that reveals that kind of that potential for, for a conflict. Right, the situation was you had a ducal conduct official that encountered a wagoner who was carrying wood on account of um, neighboring count, um, and he uh, neither had a passport nor a conduct ticket. So what the uh, conduct official did, he unhitched his horse um and sent sent the sent the guy for 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 whoever um paid him and he waited there for hours and at some point after hours uh, one of the counts balais arrives and and has one hand on on the holster and um and uh, and then yeah and so basically in this in this uh, the 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 report in the archive that i found was written down as a in the form of a dialogue and if you if you like i can read i can read like the the first couple of lines from that dialogue um, oh yeah, that would be great. Yeah, because yeah. I think it conveys it com- it pretty much yeah it gives you a good sense of how the, the kind of emotions right that went with it. So basically so we have the valet who's been waiting there for hours, and some point, uh, sorry, the, the 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 conduct official and and who's been waiting there on the side of the road for hours, and at some point the valet arrives and um, and he starts talking to him and says. So the valet says, "Why do you arrest the things of my lord? Uh, lightning should strike you," and the conduct official replies. I do not arrest them. I want to see the passport. And the valet replies, what passport? He had no passport. Why did he need a passport? Was he not enough of a passport? And the conduct uh, official replies, well, although he is enough of a passport, he should have come for a free ticket. And the valet replies, why did he need a free ticket? If I wanted to see the free ticket, he had it in his arse. He would show me ourselves. And he uncovered his behind and said, here it is. And that is that is uh, so that is and that goes on for four pages. And not, there's much more oh. name calling, and I, I will spare you. Oh. I will spare you the rest. But um, I think I think what what what's interesting here is that the rage that this valet has illustrates how the obligation to carry passports could be perceived um, as an exceedingly bothersome and debasing request, and how the right to move through that landscape was a fundamentally negotiated and. How the the, the formal structures that were charged with channeling movement were really inhabited by people who tended to operate on, uh, well, on 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 a complex basis of of of, of webs of personal obligation and and strategic self interest, and I think we should be very wary of adopting overly hierarchical perspectives um, on mm-hmm. on the history of, um, um, of 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 freedom of movement in early modernity.
0: All right. Um. Let's talk about safe conduct, which you cover in
1: chapter five, protection. Right. So um, chapter, uh, chapter five is, uh, is basically, um, it's about a particular form of safe conduct. It's about, uh, well, it's about the protective dimension of safe conduct. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. all, all the examples right, that I've given so far um, um, were suffused with claims and practices of protection. Um, and Obviously, in times of insecurity, escorts or, or letters of safe conduct were what made movement possible. Um, and at the same time, um, safe conduct could also easily become a vehicle for enforcing wider claims of dominion, right? For for uh, acts of symbolic subjection, or for self-serving economic policies. Um, and there is a, in in a way, the, the for a long time, lawyers have. have And historians as well have conceived, so early modern lawyers have have conceived of uh, safe conduct as a fundamentally reciprocal arrangement, reciprocal arrangement, right? So the duties that you pay are used to fund escorts, to uh, finance policing efforts or road maintenance. Um, but what I found is that the practice was more muddled than that. Um, so uh, in many cases, the revenues were used for unrelated purposes, or um, merchants that were robbed found it difficult then to claim a compensation um, from the uh, from the safe conduct authority or from 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 the Lord. Um, and and as in as in other cases, as in many things that I've seen throughout this book, is again it's something. It's a tension. This tension between protection. Mm-hmm. Um, Protection that you can take at face value and protection that is more well a form of violence was negotiated between individuals on the ground. And um, this particular chapter is about I take the example of uh, a river. Um, the river uh, is called the Lower Wisa, which is uh, the river that connects the city of Bremen, so an important merchant city, with the North North Sea. Um, it's it's the economic lifeline of the city, right? So they they really need uh, they really need traffic. To uh, to 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 be able to to cross that river to to go to 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 move on that river, and in the late 16th and early 17th century, the city um, placed convoy ships on the river to protect it from freebooters, but also to enforce territorial claims vis-à-vis its neighbors and particularly the counts of Oldenburg, who mostly sat on the uh, on the left bank of the river and competed with Bremen in control for the river and it's i think it's a good example for the yeah for the ambiguous nature of protection right because protection on the one hand was necessary um to to there were freebooters there were pirates and you needed uh so there there was a need there was a there was an actual need for protection but at the same time bremen used its ships to impose its claim of claims of dominion over the river and to protect um the economic interests of uh, uh of of its, uh, of its of its of its citizens and of its fishermen um, and, and of its of its of its trade trade companies so um I, I won't go into the details here but i think what so in a way what this what really comes up here is this is this a big deeply ambiguous nature of protection and protection talk mm. um right that 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 really that that you also find in political discourse where protection and security serve as a kind of scaffolding for a selective conception of freedom of movement where the mobility of some is permitted while that mobility of other um, of other people deemed dangerous is restricted, which is a tension that we that that liberal democracies nowadays deal with in, in very eerily similar ways
0: yeah absolutely this is a, these are themes that set well I think the one of the crucial things here you talk about is the negotiation right that there's constantly a conversation that's going on um on all sides. In order to, uh, to attempt to have a regulated freedom of movement, um, right. Uh, and so let's maybe we head over there, chapter six, freedom of movement.
1: Yeah. Um. So so this that's the last chapter of the book, and it's different in the sense that in what I did here is I mm-hmm. surveyed more the um, academic um, um, academic uh, discourse, uh, mostly not not only but mostly in universities, but also lawyers who who wrote long long. Um, um who wrote long long texts on all of these issues um, um, and uh and, and i think what, what's interesting is that the uh, so the the this this i there's uh, what i found this limited importance right of territorial boundaries for policing everyday forms of mobility that, that was also something that i found reflected in the political discourse of the time so it's it's not that early modern lawyers in the empire did not talk about borders in fact um, boundaries were hugely popular. were a hugely popular concept among seventeenth century legal scholars. Um, it's that boundaries were increasingly understood as delimiting sovereign polities and the bundles of uh, uh, jurisdictional, fiscal, uh, and other rights that they exercised over their territories. Uh, but cross border mobility and rights of passage um, played almost no role in these in these in these debates. Um, so if you want to know how lawyers understood um, the ordering of movement, uh, I, I, we need to look elsewhere. And I found, so I found um, discussions of, of uh, around freedom of movement around transit rights, around mobility in not in the literature on borders, but in the literature on safe conduct, on customs, on um, uh, rights over roads and rivers, as well as a scholarship on the problem of, um, of, of transit. Um, um, and that was interesting to me because the the historiography of freedom of movement, which is not which is not huge, but there is a there's a substantial number of publications, is, is often closely or exclusively linked with the with questions of emigration or immigration. Um, so long term forms of right of movement that end with settlement, um, and these are obviously a very important part of the story. But I think that they uh, somewhat obstruct. The view on other historical lineages of free movement and namely travel and trade and uh, i think so what, what the sources that i found do is they show that early modern observers often understood the spatial order of the state and and its grasp on human mobility in different terms um than the historians um, um um, so in, in the Holy Roman Empire, assumptions about the nature of roads and rivers were among the most important of uh, uh, um, 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 places where, where these kinds of discussions um, um, took place. So for instance, some lawyers based their theories of free movement on the assumption that public roads were incapable uh, uh, of possession so you couldn't you couldn't own them right you couldn't you couldn't take them into your possession. so for instance, we had this one guy, Adrian Bayer who was, a, um, was a, a barrister in in, in Thuringia and he uh, compared public roads to the veins and arteries right, that creep through all the limbs of the human and animal body and uh, divide and link them in turn um, so that none of those limbs can regard them as belonging completely to itself. Um, and basically, I, I, I will, there's other quotes, but basically, the the um, I think that the, the, what you find here is that that what these people are trying to do is that they are trying to construct arguments that are constructed somewhat crudely, an analogy to Hugo Grotius's uh, vindication of the freedom of the sea. Um, and these kinds of arguments were hugely controversial in the Holy Roman Empire, um, where the majority view was that public roads could well be subject to Ownership and dominion. So one of the Holom Empire's most eminent um, uh, lawyers or, or legal philosophers, or whatever you want to call him, Samuel Pufendorf, expressed. Uh, so he 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 took issue with those theories, and he expressed nothing but contempt for um, the half-baked analogies of his contemporaries, calling uh, calling calling these 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 arguments. Uh, and I, I quote him here: "So stupid an invention that it needs no refutation." <laughs> Which is, uh, okay. Yeah, he was, he was not happy. Um, um, I think, yeah, I think what, what, um, um, I think what's and yeah, I, I don't think I, I won't go into the details. I think what's important to to for this last chapter is that arguments for and against the restriction of passage rights in the Holy Roman Empire, for the most part, rested on opposing conceptions of spatial order. So uh, there were questions of framing, right? Whether you whether you posited extratorial thoroughfares or territorial states or humankind as a frame of reference had consequences for whether the movements of goods and people was seen as something natural, right? As a long established thing of mm-hmm. affairs or as an undesirable um, exception. Um, and yeah, I, I think, I think the, in a way, I think what the other thing that's interesting is that um, f- for a liberal academic in the 21st century, it's easy to sympathize with the history, with the intellectual history of free movement, right, and 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 see it as something that aligns well with a uh, with a with progressive or liberal agendas. And what I found is that well, it's more. The history of free movement actually has some has some dark sides in many sense, right? So the most outspoken advocates of free movement uh, among those, you find lawyers who uh, cater to fairly specific political interests like those of Sweden, which use its German outpost as a reservoir for troops and provisions and as a basis for participating in the wars on the continent. So. Um, we nowadays we tend to associate bounded territory with um that 's something that Charles Meyer said in a book that he published a couple of years ago we we we, we tend to associate bounded territory with the capacity to create inequality and unbounded spaces with um, all kinds of utopian visions of common ownership right but I think the early modern history of freedom of movement paints a much more complicated picture um in fact, endorsing freedom of movement um, in a way has has always been a privilege of those immune to its dangers um and that is something that I found that I found in these um, in these in these early modern debates
0: all right um and there's something uh, there's something beautiful there there's something really interesting to think about like whether uh that that Again, the negotiation, the constant dialectic between the desire to move freely and the desire to be safe, right? This that really relates still. Kind of protecting individual interests or state interests, or having uh, open borders, kind of a question. I'm not, I'm not stating this well, but do you know what I mean? Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 no, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, definitely, yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: Such an ongoing debate that it really rings, and the idea that we've been talking about it for 500 years is
1: right. Yeah, and it's, it's not a story that we that we usually project back into that um, into that past. We yeah, it's it's something that we, we start talking. Yeah, it's something that usually these stories start in the uh, 19th century, right? When historians write about it.
0: Yeah, well, that's when historians start writing about everything too. Um, <laughs> They They were, they were writers. All right. So let's, uh, let's, let's wrap up. I've taken a bunch of your time already. Um, so, and your conclusion pulls much of this together. And this is a place I'd like you to make
1: any final points and tell me if there's something else we've missed. Right. Um, yeah, I think so. I think what the inclusion, what, what I tried to do in the, yeah, I tried to basically wrap it up together and basically I think what it comes down to is that, um, we like to right. We like to describe the early modern period in many ways as a period of enclosure. Um, so talking about property rights, like like the um, the enclosure movement in England, but also maybe Foucault's great of great confinement. Um, and in a way, the the and I well and you have this this idea of enclosure um, rhymes well with um, with with this idea that you have what political science. Scientists like to call the westphalian system um so basically a system that inaugurated a uh, political order predicated on the upon the autonomy of sovereign states and non intervention in domestic affairs and I think what what every chapter in the book in some way shows is that in reality these polities were uh very ill equipped um for this role that political theory um has thrust upon them right so and not only that, in fact, the constitutional order of the Holy Roman Empire, the so Westphalian treaties themselves guaranteed extensive rights of transit, of trade, and of migration. Um, I think the the book also shows, I guess, that that the early modern period is a time of transition in which the movement, in which the governance of movement um, at the state level remained punctual and, if you like, almost rhizomatic uh, rather than aerial. Um, um, it also shows that the old Reich, the whole Roman Empire, looks like a closed reality if one looks at its cities. But compared to the modern border regime, its territories were very much um, very much open. Um, so I think what's important is that questioning this idea of closable borders should not mean that stumbling right from one extreme to another. it's, it's very tempting to frame the pre-modern history of migration and mobility in opposition to an immobile conception of old regime societies. But today you have so many advocates of a mobile um, connected and global early modernity that the myth of pre-modern immobility is pretty much shattered. Um, Mm -hmm. And the pendulum perhaps threatens to swing too far, right? Everything early modern seems to have been in flux. And and those who highlight elements of friction or of stasis are easily uh, portrayed as dupes of anti-feudal sentiment. and I, I think it's important to realize that diagnosis of modern and pre-modern spatial orders vary with the scales of analysis. Um, so a lot of the functions of the teritor- territorial border at the time were filled by the city wall, and then late modernity has witnessed other forms of spatial segregation, from the ghetto uh, right to the reservation. Um, and early modern, yeah, early modern politics of mobility combined fluidity and friction, right? It yielded. Uh, widely different uh, results for different social, cooperative, religious, or economic groups at different times. Um, um, and it's, it's a complicated story, really. Um, uh, so clearly, there was a long intellectual tradition in favor of free movement, but this tradition could be connected to projects of hegemonic rule and violent conquest, right? Um, and the history of the empire invites historians to separate the problems of statehood and border control but it also suggests that spatial considerations only tell us a part of the story, right? So you can have a borderless landscape uh, replete with gated communities. So the, the case <laughs> of the empire is a, is I think is a reminder that the language of borders ultimately is a very poor resource for understanding the politics yeah. of mobility. The border talk, the kind the kind that we hear a lot nowadays, right, which is emphasis on dichotomies like open and closed, and inside and outside, it obscures the fact that the politics of mobility is usually characterized by uh, an interplay of obstructive and accelerating factors that affect different forms of movement in different ways. And um, I think the history of the Holy Roman Empire in that sense points us beyond our um, late modern infatuation with the border, right It shows that the ways in which societies channel mobility can be simultaneously promotive and restricted, uh, restrictive, socially exclusionary, highly contingent, um, spatially dispersed, and ultimately morally ambiguous. Um yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow.
0: Well done. That was a great conclusion. Uh well done. That's very exciting. So uh is this work you continue? Or are you gonna we're we gonna see more on this topic from you? What are you working on now?
1: Um, yeah, so the, uh, I don't think I'm gonna, no, I don't think I'm going to continue work specifically on this, on this problem is actually my next project is, uh, is in all likelihood going to be a, um, is a spatial history of the hail cannon. So, um, uh, you had for a long time in the especially 18th and 19th century, people were convinced that, um, by shooting at the clouds, uh, you could basically, you could, you could push a storm away. So. Um, mm-hmm. what I want to do is I want to use, um, meteorological and climate data to, um, to map these, to, to create a spatial history of that. And, um, in a sense, what, what my idea is that, um, is, spatial historians are very much married to a horizontal conception of space. Um, and that's also the case of, of the, of, of, of the book that I just talked about. And what mm-hmm. I want to do with this project is I want to explore how, um, how we can uh, how, uh yeah how how mapping technologies can help us to explore verticality and volume right and uh, and try yeah and basically understand um the um the yeah understand the atmospheric environment in which in which mm-hmm. this kind of history played out
0: so where is uh, where is this work going to happen? Like, what are your sources? Tell me more about this. this is fascinating. I love this.
1: right. So this is um, yeah. yeah. This happens. Uh, so it, it depends on the regions in Europe. Different regions are affected differently by this. Uh, I think I'm particularly going to work on, um, uh, uh, on 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 um, around the Alps. Um, so uh, uh, both in uh, yeah, and in, in in, in, yeah, basically all all around. All around, um, all around the Alps. Um, and one, one, thing that this does is that. So, whereas my first book was mostly was strictly early modern, this is going to, you know, sense push me a little yeah. bit more into the into the 19th centuries. So it's mostly going to be centered yeah. around the 18th and the 19th century. Um,
0: oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that yeah will do, won't it? <laughs> oh, that's so cool. You know, we have this tradition of this in the U.S. Uh, as well, and it's the Great Plains. Okay. Uh, okay. And they're dealing with drought because. There are all these farming places and if it doesn't rain they're screwed so you have um and they you know and it's the same people who are selling snake oil i think this will be fantastic to see what you find around the alps and
1: yeah it's definitely doing this. yeah it's definitely it promises to be a, an interesting story um <laughs> mm-hmm. there's, there's oh. plenty of interesting characters involved in it no?
0: yeah you're going to meet some very interesting people <laughs> that's Oh, I can't wait to can't wait to read that. Well, then we'll talk about it then. Okay, I'll, I'll schedule an appointment yeah. after that next <laughs> book, and you can tell me all about it. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Lucas Schultz, and I wish you the best of luck. And we'll talk again soon. Take care.
1: Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks for uh, thanks for the interview.